This archival program of Design Matters with Debbie Millman was produced for Voice America Internet Radio. New programs with better audio quality are now being produced for Design Observer. You can subscribe in the iTunes Store or at the Observer Media Channel on Design Observer. Welcome to Design Matters with Debbie Millman, the show that takes you inside the provocative and stimulating world of design and branding as it intersects with contemporary culture. Here's your host of Design Matters, Debbie Millman. This past Monday, as I usually do at 10 p.m., I was watching Aaron Brown on CNN. There was massive coverage of the serial killer BTK, which of course is the acronym for Bind, Torture, Kill. BTK's real name is Dennis Rader, and the coverage on Newsnight was nothing short of gruesome, as Mr. Rader recounted the first of his nine killings to Judge Greg Waller, who accepted Rader's plea in Sedgwick County District Court. At Waller's urging, Rader provided detailed accounts of each killing, which he dispassionately described as projects or hits. And at one point, as he explained the serial killer's modus operandi, Rader said, they go through what they call different phases. In the trolling stage, basically, you're looking for a victim at that time. You can be trolling for months or years, but once you lock in on a certain person, you become a stalker. There might be several of them, but you really hone in on one person. They basically become the victim, or at least that's what you want it to be. Rader pleaded guilty and he also recanted his right to a jury trial. He seemed perfectly calm and quite at peace with his decisions, and if viewers didn't know better, one could almost consider that he was recalling the play-by-play of a horror movie rather than the details of nine serial killings. BTK's lack of remorse, as he confessed the last moments of his projects, caused even the usually taciturn Aaron Brown to shudder. I was riveted. I felt nauseous. And I was all but paralyzed listening to this man who seemed to have, as Aaron Brown aptly put it, no soul. When Newsnight went to a commercial break, Mr. Brown asked his viewers to return to continue to witness what he referred to as the banality of evil. This is when my jaw dropped. According to Dictionary.com, banal means drearily commonplace and predictable. A common definition of evil is causing ruin injury, pain, morally bad, or wrong. It seems to me that when you join these two words to to suggest somehow that evil can now be considered trite is when the world as we hope to know it undergoes a mutation of sorts. I can think of no better response to this than that of my dear comrade, James Kint, who when I emailed my consternation to him Monday night, he responded as follows. The banality of evil. I think that statement right there indicates how society has become completely numb to the effects of evil. Nothing surprises us anymore. It fits right in there with the steady decline of civilization. Oh, another kidnapping, another car bomb, another missing kid, another serial killer, another dead girl in Aruba. It's like we just shake our heads and go, damn shame. So what did Tom Cruise do today? He goes on to say that he really enjoys the dry, sarcastic wit of Henry Rollins from Black Flag. Henry Rollins now has his own show on IFC called Henry's Film Corner. And James thinks he puts it best most recently when he said, 
Do you remember a while ago when pop culture events used to be small blips on the news screen to momentarily divert us from the day-to-day boring, tedious, and horrible events of planet Earth? And now the boring, horrible, nasty events of planet Earth are a mere distraction from pop culture news. You know as well as I do that, when we, that we live in a dangerous time where the war in Iraq, a nuclear threat in North Korea, and a president who is shoving arch conservatives into the American court system, and we don't hear anything about them. Why? Because Jennifer Lopez has a new line of sunglasses. Because Martha Stewart just got out of prison and we're wondering what she's going to plant this spring. Could it be that current events are so horrible and dreary and grinding that we need massive relief where we take the eye off the ball? How many dead Americans do we need to come back to this country from Iraq and Afghanistan for us to take our minds off of American Idol, Survivor, and The Bachelor? I want to watch the news and I want to find out what's going on in the real world, not what's going on in the world of Paris Hilton, who makes interesting porn films, but past that I don't really care what wavy, overpaid trust fund kids have to do with anything. There is a time and a place for pop culture news. The problem I have is the priority that all this stuff gets next to the real weighty world events. And I know I'm sounding like I'm overreaching, politically correct, and tree-hugging when actually I'm a pissed-off American who's tired of people sleeping on the job when they should be really concerned about what's going on in the wonderful country they live in. Hence, the banality of evil. And hence, the brilliance of my friend James Kent. Thank you, James. We invite you to call in today if you're listening. And today, dear listeners on Design Matters, we are talking to a designer and illustrator who has examined the nature of evil in his most recent book, aptly titled 100% Evil. Joining me is the extraordinary Nicholas Blessman. Let me tell you a little bit more about him. Nicholas is an illustrator and a graphic designer. He founded his studio, Knickerbocker Design, where he works for clients such as Greenpeace, Simon & Schuster, Little Brown, The New York Times, Random House, The Nation, Maxim, and Print Magazine. Prior to launching Knickerbocker, he was the art director of the New York Times op-ed page, and he is currently the art director of the New York Times Week in Review. He also is the designer and publisher of the alternative comic book, No Zone. Welcome, Nicholas. Hi. Thank you. Hi. How are you? Okay, very good. Thank you for joining me on Design Matters. I want to start our conversation today by continuing on this theme of the banality of evil. And when Jen Simon, my chief researcher, was helping me find all kinds of interesting details about your life and your work, I came across a couple of pieces that actually talked about the idea of banality and evil. And um, one of the pieces that I found on Front List was... um, a piece that Anna Arendt said, uh, she said that she thought that um, the questions, what does it look like, a politician, an ex-girlfriend, your landlord, your boss, she thought this was banal and in this hilarious, disturbing, quirky, and brilliant little book, and she's talking about your book, 100% Evil, uh, both you and Christoph Neiman present a catalog of their own misanthropic imaginings. And then as well, Tom Tomorrow on Democrats.com referred to your book, uh, he referred to Empire in this way, Empire dissects the banality and pretense of our leaders' burgeoning imperial aspirations. So what's with this banality? Tell me about how this all connects, please. Well, you know, uh, the past few years have been pretty turbulent. I mean, everyone always refers to the landmark event of September 11th, so it's going to be hard not to avoid, but I think... From that point on, um, America has waged several wars or several um, violent campaigns in Afghanistan and in Iraq, and there have been, um, and that's caused a wave of repercussions of 
terrorists and um, you know the whole rise of the insurgency in Iraq. So it's it, this evil is something that I think we've been confronted with um, on a daily level, and so. But I think that the way, I think the reason it's banal, and I'm just speculating here, is that because we don't experience it firsthand, we experience it in the news, on television, um, in magazines, and so it occupies a place that's similar with and competes with a lot of the things that you mentioned uh, earlier, such as you know Martha Stewart and uh, her going to prison, and for example Tom Cruise and how he behaves or misbehaves, and so. It, it's because it's on the same level. We're kind of, you know, we can switch back and forth between these two different things, and so the the weight and the pain of people suffering, for example, or of troops being killed in Iraq, we we, you know, sometimes I don't know, we can't feel it as much as if we were actually there, or it has the same weight as, for example, um, you know, Tom Cruise or or something something a little more entertaining. I find it so um, sad and, and somewhat, um, it gives me a sense of real doom about our future as, as a civilization when Tom Cruise's rantings or Paris Hilton's sort of naked antics take precedence over what is really going on. It, it brings me back to sort of that wonderful book and movie many years ago, Wag the Dog, where all of these things were used as distractions to um, take us away from what we were being confronted with on a daily basis. At least then, though, it was still some, somewhat politically oriented, whereas now I think it's just a matter of ultimate entertainment distraction. You know, oh, there's a war in Afghanistan, but does Jen have a new boyfriend? You know, what's Brad going to say? What does Angelina think of Brad's relationship now with her son? I mean, who cares? Why is it that we are so preoccupied, in your mind, with the celebrity culture right now? Um, I don't know. It's a good question. I mean, it's partly because I, I think it's partly... I can't just blame it all on the media. I mean, I think it is human nature to kind of be interested in other people's lives and, and lives that are more, you know, perhaps exciting and glamorous than our own and to live vicariously through them. Um, so, I mean, I, I think it does function, you know, in a kind of entertaining way. I mean, one can take, you know, violent stories or one can take the news in Iraq or news about the insurgents only for so long. I mean, even I myself, after a few, you know, after a week of, of suicide attacks, you just, you just, it becomes the same, it's the same devastating um, horror that happens over and over again, and through repetition, I guess it becomes banal, and mm -hmm. uh, it, it becomes hard to feel and to process. And um, I'm probably jumping the gun here, but I do have a daytime job working at the New York Times in the Week in Review, and what we part of the job involves running through lots of going through lots of photographs, and the photographs come through in a kind of computer system called Merlin, and we can just browse. And we can just see all these different images. And some of the images that I see in Iraq are just absolutely horrifying and will no way make itself into print. Um, now, why is that? Is it because we need to censor that information, or is it because the American public couldn't handle it? Or I mean, it's a really good question. And, uh, you know, it's, it's one that well, I'm always so busy under deadline, I've never had a chance to really confront the photo editors or my editors with why, what, what the actual code of ethics is, why we can't reproduce images of, 
you know, victims of, of explosion Baghdad. And well, certainly I know the government doesn't want us to... There's been an outlaw for reproducing photographs of uh, wounded uh, soldiers coming back to the United States, but I think it's a different thing when we can't even show um, somebody whose leg has been blown off by a bomb. Well, I think we'll have to come back and talk about that more in depth uh, after our break. I'd like to uh, let our listeners know that this is Design Matters with Debbie Millman on Voice America Business. And Debbie Millman and my guest today is the extraordinary Nicholas Blackman. We'll be right back with our broadcast after these messages. Please don't go away. You're listening to The Bottom Line in Business Talk. Voice America Business. Technology is changing the way we live our lives and how we do business. On Managing Technology the Right Way, we'll talk about the benefits of technology and the great things it allows us to do, as well as its associated risks. Heard every Friday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, Sun Jogal, the host of Managing Technology the Right Way, will interview business leaders and other experts that have shaped the way we use technology. If you want to keep up with the changing world of technology, listen to Managing Technology the Right Way with Sun Jogal every Friday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time right here on BusinessAmericaRadio.com. You hear business show after business show all geared towards improving a company's bottom line. But what about your bottom line? How come no one ever talks about that? Finally, a show dedicated to the worker, The Crow Show with Paul McLaughlin, The Work Walk. Heard every Wednesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, The Crow Show is aimed specifically at the worker and their environment. From work skills and technology to dealing with bosses and coworkers, The Crow Show will give you insight on how to survive and prosper in today's workplace. The Crow Show with Paul McLaughlin, The Work Walk every Wednesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, right here on the bottom line of Business Talk, BusinessAmericaRadio.com. Think you've got a grip on the profit potential your property has? Tune in to VoiceAmerica.com Wednesdays at 2 p.m. Pacific Standard Time for Commercial Real Estate 101 with Dennis Manning. Dennis will teach you the ins and outs of the massive world of real estate. You will learn the rewards and pitfalls of why to invest in commercial real estate. You'll also hear from experts in property management, lending, title work, tax-deferred exchanges, legal issues, and many entrepreneurial investors. The best part? You'll learn to generate a regular income that will lead to enticing capital gains. So don't miss one moment of Commercial Real Estate 101 with Dennis Manning. Wednesdays at 2 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, right here on voiceamerica.com. Keeping you a step ahead of the changing world of business. This is Voice America Business. Welcome back to Design Matters with Debbie Millman. If you would like to be a caller on the show, dial toll-free at 1-866-233-7861. Once again, that's 1-866-233-7861. And now, back to the host of Design Matters, Debbie Millman. Welcome back. It is 3.20 Eastern Time, and you are listening to Design Matters with Debbie Millman, live from New York City. I am your host, Debbie Millman, and my guest today is designer and illustrator Nicholas Blackman. And before the break, we were talking about what does and does not uh, make it into print in terms of photography and imagery. And we were talking in particular about the New York Times and the fact that the New York Times does not, as a general rule, publish photographs of wounded soldiers, wounded American soldiers. And during the break, I was asking Nicholas, I, I was noticing, and I don't know if any of our listeners have been aware of this, but over the last couple of months, I've seen quite a lot of 
imagery, a lot of photography and lots of different medium uh, of people smoking again. It seems like the pendulum has gone to the, starting to move to the other side of that extreme. And I've noticed photographs of people smoking in Maxim and GQ. And there was a spread in March, I believe, in Vogue. Uh, with very beautiful supermodels in haute couture clothing, and they were also smoking. And uh, back in March as well, I happened to notice three times in a period of three weeks, smokers were featured uh, in photography, in photographs, in the New York Times, one of which was a very large picture of a soldier on the top half of the front page, the top half of the fold. And uh, he was a soldier who had a... American flag draped around his face so it obscured who it was, but you could very easily see in his left hand was a lit cigarette. I find it interesting that we can't show photographs of wounded soldiers, but we can certainly show them with uh, an American flag and a lit cigarette. And so, Nicholas, my, my long-winded question to you, <laughs> sorry about that, is how does something like that happen? Who makes those decisions? Um, well, I, I mean, they do consider the, I mean, I don't know what the criteria are for choosing a photograph for the, for it to be published in the newspaper, but they do have a page one meeting in which they decide what news stories will get onto the front. Well, I think we'll have to come back and talk about that more in depth uh, after our break. I'd like to uh, let our listeners know that this is Design Matters with Debbie Millman on Voice America Business. I'm Debbie Millman, and my guest today is the extraordinary Nicholas Blackman. We'll be right back with our broadcast after these messages. Please don't go away. Business is in your blood and you need answers. Get connected. Call 1-866-233-7861. Are you feeling slammed and suckered in today's stock market? If so, then you need to tune in to Profitable Investing with Jordan Kimmel. Every Thursday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, Jordan Kimmel will train you in what you can do to beat up the big boys on Wall Street, as well as share his secrets to success so that you can buy and sell like a profit-pumping pro. Grab the bull market by the horns and listen to Profitable Investing with Jordan Kimmel. Every Thursday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, right here on the bottom line of business talk, Voice America Business. Business talk is all we do. Voice America Business at voiceamerica.com. Achieve total wealth management. Listen to Three-Dimensional Wealth with Roy Diefendorf every Monday at 2 p.m. Pacific, 5 Eastern on Business America Radio. Three-Dimensional Wealth is a show dedicated to teaching you a values-based approach to comprehensive total wealth management through practical strategies and expert advice. Take your first step down the road of financial independence. Listen to Three-Dimensional Wealth with Roe Diefendorf, Mondays at 2 p.m. Pacific, 5 Eastern, here on the bottom line in business talk, businessamericaradio.com. The bottom line in business talk, Voice America Business. We're back with Design Matters with Debbie Millman. If you have a question for Debbie, feel free to call us at 1-866-233-7861. Once again, here's the host of Design Matters, Debbie Millman. Can I just pick up where I left off? Mm-hmm. Okay. Welcome back. You are listening to Design Matters with Debbie Millman on Voice America Business. I am Debbie Millman, and my guest today is author and auteur Nicholas Blessman. Nicholas, we were talking about the nature of photography in the New York Times, and 
I think we had a little bit of a technical difficulty at that moment, and maybe, you know, Big Brother in the Sky cut us off. I don't know. It's kind of hard to say. <laughs> if I was a conspiracy theorist, I would say maybe somebody was listening. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, especially because I was just about to say that there is no conspiracy theory that one can attach to the way photographs <laughs> are chosen when the phone went dead. Um, <laughs> really, it's just a bunch of people gathered in a room, and they're looking at a bunch of photographs, and they try to find the one that's most appealing. So, I mean, I think I think it's an interesting coincidence that um, that there is a kind of renaissance or backlash of people in advertise not in advertisements, but in editorial spreads, models, and so forth with cigarettes. Um, and, yeah, it is a paradox, but I guess maybe it just goes back to that whole banality of evil issue. That, well... Uh, you know, I think evil is a very interesting concept as well as just a, a state of mind in that everybody has a different perception of what evil is. George Bush thinks that the axis of evil is somewhere on the other side of the world and they think we're evil over here for thinking they're evil. And, you know, I think that it's just a matter of determining what your personal beliefs are, and if somebody doesn't believe in them, then it always stands to reason that if they don't believe in them, then, you know, they must be evil. And I think fundamentally it's something that we can't accept when somebody else thinks that they're right and we're not. You know, there can't be two people being right at the same time. One has to be right, one has to be wrong. And I, I want to sort of take that as a segue into your book, 100% Evil, um, can you tell us a little bit about how you came to the not only the title but just the whole idea of the book? Well, the idea might be a little difficult to explain, but I'll attempt it. Um, with Christoph Niemann, who's also an illustrator and whom I'm a friend with and we share a studio with, we had started doing these little books on the side of our professional works called 100%, and each book had a theme, and they were a bunch of drawings, basically, that were not, that, that though they had a theme, they weren't done for a specific client. It was, it was our kind of free associating with paper and pen. And each issue of the book was a different percentage. So the first issue was on maps, and that was 23%. And then we did architecture, and that was 8%. And when you added it all up, you would have 100%. And um, we self-published these. We they usually had about 100 pages each and or 100 drawings each, and they were in limited editions of 100. So 100 kind of like became the magic number for which we, that we built the whole project around. And then we realized that it really it made no sense to self-publish because we would just, by the time we were, you know, we would hand out a bunch to a bunch of our friends and a few to a small bookstore called Printed Matter, and before we knew it, we had no more copies. So it was, why bother putting so much effort into a project that could only go so far? So we decided that while choosing the theme evil, that we would find a real publisher, and that's when um, we offered it to Princeton Architectural Press. And we settled on the theme of evil. I, I mean, I think... We don't really like to articulate exactly what the source of the theme was. It was just, it was something, it was a word that was just in the air, I suppose, and it was something that Bush made several references to, um, and it just seemed apt after all the violence that uh, New York has been through after, after the September 11th attacks and the, the wars, that evil was a theme that we could 
have fun with. Um, so you had fun with it. Tell me about that. Well, uh, it was. We started. We decided not to be. We tried not. It's such a heavy theme, and there's no, there's nothing. I think it's fun to not take sometimes a very serious and heavy and loaded theme and treat it in a very light way. Mm-hmm. And so we kind of moved in that direction, and um, we tried to cut out the a lot of the heavy, more political stuff and just tried to kind of combine it with, with lighter stuff. So. Yeah, I mean, if, if there is a real sense of, I think, humor that runs through it as well as a poignancy in some of the imagery. Um, you know, of course, as a brand zealot, I love the Dominate Sugar box very, very much. <laughs> um now, did you and Christoph just take turns with the pages? How did you guys work together? How, what was the collaboration process it was, like? It was a very organic process. I mean, basically, we would um, each draw on our own, and then we would show drawings to each other over beers, and we would proceed to kill each other's drawings, saying they were too literal or too obvious until we found those, called those that were best from each. And sometimes um, I would... Uh, suggest an idea to Christoph, or sometimes Christoph would redraw a drawing that I had done. But I think those were occasions were rare. For the most part, it was we were just working in this black and white linear style in our sketchbooks and scanned all the images in and then kind of put it all together in, on the computer. And then we tried to mix up the sequence as much as possible, and we found a lot of the time that Christoph would do a drawing that would somehow echo drawing that I had done, and there seemed to be a kind of rhythm that we would that we would build. So did that happen organically? Because I, I, you know, obviously going through the book several times, I couldn't help but notice that there were pages, many, many pages, where one illustration, one drawing seems to play off another. I'm looking right now at the illustration of the man with the eyeglasses with the one tear coming out of the eye, and then across uh, from that illustration is one of two eyeballs peering at each other within one eye socket. Were those, were those images that just happened um, serendipitously or was exactly. it a matter, of, or, or a matter of building on each other's themes? No, it, would, it, would, it pretty much happened organically. I mean, Christoph would have this drawing in his sketchbook and I would have a drawing in my sketchbook of this, this eyeglass that formed a tear and we would just put the two together and we're like, okay, these kind of comment on each other in a nice way. And that's pretty much how we built the whole book. Except for the in, the in the middle, we have a war in which it's almost like um, something one would draw in school, in which he sends he draws a whole army and I draw a whole army, and they fight it out in the middle section. Um, in your mind, who wins? <laughs> well, in my mind, we both annihilate each other. It's mutually assured destruction. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I I think there we kind of have fun with the idea of war, but we also feel as if war is the ultimate expression of evil, and that's why we had to, we felt we had to include it, and we had, it had to be the centerpiece. But it's kind of absurd. I have a, I send all my kitchen appliances against Christoph, and Christoph has this monster that, like a Chagall cow, because he doesn't like Chagall paintings. <laughs> why doesn't he like Chagall paintings? I have no idea why he doesn't like Chagall paintings. I particularly don't like them either, actually. I think they're just too pretty and too nice. Um, but in any case, <laughs> we'll have to get yeah, no, I, to tell I, us I'm why. I'm not a huge fan myself. 
But again, it was it was trying to bring in that absurdist element to it that I think helped. Um, uh, I have a couple of quotes here that I found um, on the record you saying, and I want to share a couple with you sure. and get you to elaborate if possible. Um, the first one is, um, I've always been attracted to protest art, Blackman says, because of the urgency of the message and the implicit anger in rebel graphics. Furthermore, designers and artists are also citizens and we have a responsibility to society to use our images in ways that benefit all of us. For some of us, this means creating works of enduring beauty. For others, it means fighting social injustices. Can you tell me a little bit more about what you mean by that? I guess I was just trying to explain why I do what I do or why I like to create images that have a kind of certain political potency. Mm-hmm. Um, and I do believe that there's nothing wrong with David Hockney, who does beautiful um, drawings of pools, for example. But I also feel that that kind of work, if everybody did that kind of beauty and landscape painting, that there would be no debate in the world or no debate in this country. And that I think that what makes this a democracy is when there is a kind of divergence of opinion. When there is a kind of plurality of thinking, so I, mm-hmm. I feel like I feel that it's just important for us to um, to exercise that. But maybe maybe it's just also it's just ex- you know personal expression, just like some people express themselves through um, drawing nude figures. Other people express themselves by what they read in the newspaper or what's going on um, on the other side of the world if it enrages them. Um, I mean, I think there's a certain anger that that one associates with protest that I guess, I don't know, as a kid, uh, one always goes through a rebellious moment and mine kind of veered in that direction, I guess. And has, hasn't stopped. No, it hasn't. It hasn't. But it's taken um, different forms. So. Yeah, obviously. And I want to talk about Empire in a few... Well, let, let me ask you about Empire because... You know, you say that empire doesn't really refer to any one thing, but to a vast matrix of forces and counterforces. And then you go on to say that billions drink its sodas, listen to its music, breathe its air, drive its cars, smoke its tobacco, practice its religions, watch its movies, ingest its pharmaceuticals, pay its debts, and benefit or suffer from its policies. And it leads me to the question about the nature of consumerism in our culture. And is this something that you feel is fundamentally a bad thing? I don't think it's fundamentally a bad thing. I mean, God, I enjoy it. I love shopping, <laughs> you know, like everyone. Um, and I think it's something that, you know, the way the way things are built, we can't get around spending money um, during the day. It's almost impossible. Um, but I just want people to be aware of it. And mm-hmm. I, I, I sometimes think that it becomes almost a... You don't shop for the necessity of shopping. Like hunter-gatherers would go out because they had to get something. They had to go buy something because they were hungry and they had to eat. And sometimes we just we shop for the sheer pleasure of shopping. It becomes an end in and of itself. And and I guess there's nothing wrong with that. But sometimes it it takes away from um, or it distracts us from other political forces. Or, what do you think uh, it distracts forces. us from? Um. I think possibly, well, certainly a lot of the companies have ties to, you can't, I, I guess what I meant is that you can't innocently go into a store and just buy something in the sense that if you buy any kind of a product, 
It's going to come from a company, and that company is going to have certain investments, and those investments are going to be spread out in different parts of the world, and some of them are going to be used in ways that might be harmful to other people. And there are all these kinds of associations, I think, that one that exists but one doesn't make or that are not made visible that are kind of disguised by the packaging, for example. Um, okay. Like what? Well, I, I mean, I don't know I, off the top of my hand, uh, top of my head, um, what the most evil products out there are. But I, I and I, I think my dominate sugar was kind of alluding to that. Mm-hmm. Was that um, you know when you buy um, the example I give in Empire is that when you buy even something as innocent as an apple, um, you pay tax on that apple, and that tax somehow ends up going to the government, to the IRS, and the IRS gives a certain portion of that to the military, and the military uses that in a certain way in Iraq. So that's the kind of process that I think, or the kind of associations I think that people, it might be useful to bear in mind. Yes, I'm looking at an illustration by Ward Sutton in, in uh, Empire with a soldier covered with endorsement logos, Fox, CNN, WB, Disney, CBS, AOL, The New York Post, NBC, ABC. Netscape. Yeah, I love that image. I, love I do that too. Image of this gung ho soldier, and he's emblazoned with all these patches, not of the military, but of all these different corporations, with all these explosions in the background. And it's a cool picture, you know. So it's a of, of the soldier bearing, bearing this gun. Um, but I, I, I guess that was a, a way of alluding to the fact that all these soldiers, I mean, all these reporters and journalists and media companies were. Were invited to participate in the Iraq campaign as long as they were embedded mm-hmm. in with the troops, and I think that this was a way of showing that the division between how the military sees the war and how the journalists might see the war is not that different. And I think that this idea of so you look at this as a drawing and you think, oh my God, this is some sort of leftist nut who drew this this cartoon of this soldier with all these you know, ABC on it and all these other kind of news companies on it, and I'm sure the news companies themselves think they're doing a fair job, but I, I, it's also, I, th- I think this concept of the embedded soldier, it's not something that Ward Sutton invented, it's something that the military came up with. And they came up with it deliberately because they of, of their the previous experiences in Vietnam in which the, um, the newspaper and the media was really at odds with the, the goals of the mission, the military mission. Well, I mean, what do you think we can do as designers? I mean, I know that there's certainly a lot of potency in printing our messages and publishing our thoughts and our ideas and our ideals. Um, you know, one of the things that you wrote here, I'm reading um, one another interview that you that you did, comics design and protest can change the world or inform public policy, but they can plant a seed of questioning the people's minds and create an atmosphere in which change can happen. How do you feel like that change can happen? Have you witnessed any of that? Have you experienced that firsthand? What is your inspiration to try to make that happen? No, unfortunately, I haven't. I haven't noticed much of it. Um, it's just this kind of basic belief that even even if even if it hasn't happened, it's necessary at least to to, to make the effort and to make these issues um, public and to talk about them. Um, and I think you know, I mean, my no Zone and Empire, that that book was really, it was just a call to the 
designers and illustrators to express themselves politically when so much was going on with American foreign policy. It was nothing more than that to get the debate going. Um, so I, I feel as if it's a kind of a, a document that represents what we were thinking at a certain moment in time. But I do think that there one could make a specific documentary film on a specific issue that could, I think, have an impact. Um, and I know that there's a there there were plans to build a cement factory in Hudson, upstate New York, called the St. Lawrence Cement, and there was a huge battle among local citizens to fight that. And um, my mother actually wrote a little book explaining the effects that it, this building this cement plant would have on the environment and people's health, and I helped design and put together that book. And I think that that, we printed 10,000 copies of them and maybe distributed about 5,000, but it really, I think that kind of thing, that kind of very specific targeted work does make a difference. Do you feel that designers and illustrators are outspoken enough? Do you think that there's more that we should or could be doing? Oh, definitely. <laughs> so why aren't we doing it? Why why isn't that happening? Why are there so few empires and so few uh, 100% evil type tomes? Uh, it's it's really a good question, and I'm hoping that you know by producing these works that maybe it'll inspire a, a you know a younger generation of students who perhaps in art school will I don't know be inspired to to, to vocalize how they feel politically through their work and through their art. Well, tell me about some of your influences. You've been very outspoken about the, the influence that your father has had on you. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about that? Uh, my father, R.O. Blackman, he's a cartoonist, and um, he's an illustrator, and he's also a filmmaker and a kind of satirist, and he he's just a very outspoken liberal, and, and you know he would read the New York Times in the morning and then, always comment on what he was reading and so I was always familiar with what was going on news wise and so and he would always whenever he could he loved to do political cartoons. I mean he loved to do all sorts of drawings but he was especially keen on doing political cartoons. And so I mean it, that's always been an influence and how did he feel when you went to work for the New York Times? Oh I think he was delighted. <laughs> I, I I think he absolutely loved it. Um no, everybody loves you know when they're everybody loves when their children you know work for the New York Times. It seems like a real adult, legitimate job, and it was my first, so they were proud. And of course, it gave him the opportunity. I would call him up, and I would get to work with him and commission artwork from him. So that was always a thrill. Mm-hmm. Um, who else is? Who, tell us about some of your other influences. Uh, also, I mean, just growing up as a kid in New York. For some reason, I gravitated towards punk rock music, and the more political forms of it, I think, really inspired me. So just listening to music, such as, you know, bands, I mean, you mentioned earlier Black Flag and Henry Rollins, but also, you know, the Dead Kennedys and DOA and The Clash. And The Clash were extremely political, even though they were talking about Britain, they were talking about working class rights and that sort of thing. And all that stuff, you kind of read it all, and it, it does make you think, to a certain degree, um, about some of those issues. Yeah, actually, I have a quote here where you said the New York Times 
was just a less punk rock version of what you were already doing in No Zone. <laughs> I love yeah, that. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> so, Do you remember an, oh, a band called Flipper? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which had absolutely. the most extraordinary fish sort of line drawing as their logo. and I'll never forget a song that they had. And the one line that just sort of keeps going through my head over the course of my life at various times is, never mind, you wouldn't understand anyway. <laughs> <laughs> which I really love. Um, well, so now, back to Empire. This is your ninth issue. Um, this is the first issue that was printed by Princeton Architectural Press. Prior to that, you were doing them all on your own. Um, how, how did this even begin for you? How did you start to create this whole empire of empire? Well, I wish it was an empire. I mean, I only think I think I published at the most 3,000 copies of one issue, or 2,000 copies, and and of the 3,000, only 2,000 would get distributed, which is a fraction in terms of what you know, the distribution of, of mainstream magazines. I just have um, to tell you, in my search for Empire and 100% Evil, obviously the first place that I would go to look would be graphic arts or right. design, and neither of your books were there. One was in current affairs, and the other was in social sciences, and I kind of loved that. I but in any that. case, <laughs> so no, that, was, that, that was a marketing decision on Princeton Architectural Press. They decided that they would not market it as a in, in the design or graphic design section of books. I guess when you do a book, and I didn't know this, that you can only market it. You can only choose one category that it's going to be in. Wow. So history or health, or else you can put it in five different places of the bookstore. <laughs> That's would really be an empire of the bookstore, so they wouldn't like that. So you have to be specific as to what kind of a book it is. And Princeton bravely decided to plot it as um, a political science book. Well, that's, that's an interesting concept. Let's come back and talk about that after the break. I'd like to let everyone know that you are listening to Design Matters with Debbie Millman on Voice America Business. I am Debbie Millman, and my guest today is designer and illustrator Nicholas Blackman. We'll be right back with our broadcast after these messages. Please don't go away. More and more people are starting their day with informative, focused business talk. Top experts. Today's business issues. Voice America Business at voiceamerica.com. What stock should I buy? When is it time to sell? Where do I turn for honest advice on my portfolio? For the answers to these questions, tune in to Trading in Today's Markets with Oliver Alvarez and Greg Capra every Thursday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time. On the show, Oliver, Greg, and their guests will discuss the daily going-ons of Wall Street as well as give you tips on how to identify the hottest sectors and trends in the market. Improve your portfolio. Listen to Trading in Today's Markets with Oliver Alvarez and Greg Capra. Broadcast live on Business America Radio every Thursday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time. Business talk is all we do. Voice America Business at voiceamerica.com. Are your accounts stuck in bumper-to-bumper traffic? Are your finances flowing at two miles an hour? It's time to crank your cash into high gear by tuning in to Making Sense of Financial Nonsense with Bullseye Bruce Horowitz. Every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Time, Bullseye Bruce will give you no-nonsense, common-sense financial advice that anyone can understand, as well as bring you clarity on some of the most complex and confusing financial issues today. So get out of that traffic jam and listen to Making Sense of Financial Nonsense every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Time, right here on the bottom line in business talk. Voice America Business. 
Are you feeling slammed and suckered in today's stock market? If so, then you need to tune in to Profitable Investing with Jordan Kimmel. Every Thursday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, Jordan Kimmel will train you in what you can do to beat up the big boys on Wall Street, as well as share his secrets to success so that you can buy and sell like a profit-pumping pro. Grab the bull market by the horns and listen to Profitable Investing with Jordan Kimmel. Every Thursday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, right here on the bottom line of business talk, Voice America Business. Tune in every Tuesday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time for The Growth Strategist with Aldana Ambler. On the show, Aldana and some of today's top business professionals will discuss some of today's most pressing business issues that hold you, the business owner, back. Aldana will also give you 21 ways to grow with her list of growth strategies. Grow smart, grow profit, and grow your business with Aldana Ambler and The Growth Strategist every Tuesday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, right here on the bottom line in business talk, Voice America Business. Keeping you a step ahead of the changing world of business. This is Voice America Business. Welcome back to Design Matters with Debbie Millman. If you would like to be a caller on the show, dial toll-free at 1-866-233-7861. Once again, that's 1-866-233-7861. And now, back to the host of Design Matters, Debbie Millman. Welcome back. It is 3.50 Eastern Time, and you're listening to Design Matters with Debbie Millman, live from New York City. I am your host, Debbie Millman, and my guest today is designer and illustrator extraordinaire, Nicholas Blackman. A little bit before the break, we were talking about consumerism, and I asked Nicholas during the break if he was no-logo or pro-logo, and for our listeners out there that might not be familiar with those terms, no-logo is taken from Naomi's Klein book, uh, Naomi Klein's book, No Logo, where she talks about how uh, corporations and products are somewhat badly influencing our culture, and then pro-logo is the magazine The Economist's response to her stance, and both in the book Empire as well as uh, in some of my research that we did, we found some interesting little tidbits on what Nicholas uh, might think about it. And one of the quotes, actually, I don't want to pull from the book, Nicholas, is Jesse Gordon's from Aldrich to the Empire, and here, um, this is what it says. Check your wallet. If you're carrying an ATM card, then you are a fully registered member of the Empire, armed with just this piece of plastic and your secret password, of course. You have the privilege of being able to go to any corner of the globe and tap into the largest, mightiest, most universal financial system ever to exist. After paying your respects to the altar of your choice, you are invited to take your cash and, if you wish to practice the only form of service fully recognized by our system, spend it. And I found it so interesting that after 9-11 and all of the um, efforts being made to comfort people, the one thing that people really remember now is Rudy Giuliani saying, go out and spend money. And I just find it as wonderful as he was during that time and as wonderful a leader as he was, and I do believe that. I don't know how you feel about it, but for him to tell people after this massive tragedy to go shopping just seems incredibly short-sighted, although, yes, our economy was at stake, but my God, you know, did anybody really want to go out looking for Giorgio Armani suits on sale? It's unbelievable. 
I know. And, and I know. yet you can totally sympathize with him. I mean, he's, he was probably being completely honest. I mean, I'm sure it cost the city. I mean, besides the human tragedy, I'm sure it cost the city a lot of money. And I'm sure most everybody was staying home, and I'm sure it frightened the hell out of them. So why why does shopping comfort us? I mean, one of the things that that you that I have here that you've said is we have no idea, for example, that by wearing a certain sweatshirt we are contributing to labor abuse in North Korea, that by using an ATM in Beirut we are making donations to the fortune of a banker in Boston, that by starting our car we are tacitly endorsing a war in the oil fields of the Middle East. These connections exist, but hidden in the voluptuous vastness of the empire, they become invisible. So what is it about our psyche that makes us somehow so motivated to buy things, to define ourselves, to enthrall ourselves, to distract ourselves? What Do you have any sense about what it is in our nature that makes us do this? No, absolutely not. <laughs> I'm really not a... Uh... Psychologists are know know what the latest psychology theory is on on shopping, but I mean it certainly does give you, as you say, it's, it helps you define yourself, and you can define yourself really easily by by buying certain brands. Right. Well, then you run into the I think the dichotomy, or the or sort of certainly the the problem of having to deliver on that persona. Well, you know, here I am wearing these really cool jeans, but you know, I'm really not a cool girl. <laughs> So, you know, when are people going to find out the truth, you know? <laughs> sort of false advertising in a lot of ways. Right. Well, so, I, mean, I think, you know, uh, we all need to belong to something and, and to be part of some group or some club. And I guess if you buy certain products, you can join those clubs, I suppose. And I, I guess there's also a certain power that comes from just being able to purchase, to accumulate material wealth. I guess there's a certain kind of... Uh, something very empowering about doing that. Yeah, I think um, one of my favorite quotes in, in Empire is um, Condoleezza Rice saying, we need a common enemy to unite us. So what is that common uh, enemy in Iraq or is it in Bloomingdale's? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so um, one of my last questions to you before we go into the pop culture quiz is, are you, are you optimistic or pessimistic about the future, Nicholas? I, I tend to be I tend to be pessimistic against my own wishes. Um, Why is that? Certainly, I just I just I just politically I just wish that things were moving in a direction that I, I wish I had a sense that there was some sort of positive forward movement in terms of the, um, the policies of our government. I mean, certainly the war in Iraq, no one expected it to be as bad. Even I think critics of the war didn't think it would be as bad as it is now. Right, um, and that's just one isolated example. Um, and I think there was a certain, you know, uh, Carrie, Carrie being defeated was a huge blow to my sense of optimism. Actually, I'm wearing a John Kerry for President T-shirt as we speak. Oh, good for you. You see, I think I'm, I'm, I'm seeing all these signs of Carrie all of a sudden. There are lots of bumper stickers out here in Montauk where I am of, of John Kerry and, Bob, and 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 Edwards, and I think that. Uh, I think that their loss was a huge, huge blow to a lot of people. And um, yeah, I think it was a defining moment in our history. You know, we'll, I think so. I one think of those so. paths that we're now down that's irrevocable. Um, before I ask you a couple of other sort of lighthearted questions to end our interview on a sort of happy pre Fourth of July note, um, celebrating our independence, so to speak, irony of ironies. Um, where can people get your books? Um, can they go to Amazon and order them? Can tell us how, how our listeners can get your material? 
think Amazon. Um, I think you can still order books. Or I believe, I mean, certainly Princeton Architectural Press is, you could go directly to the publisher, and I believe their web address is papress.com. Okay, good. P-A-P-R-E-S-S. But anyway, it's very easy to Google. Okay, um, good. And they, they'll hook you up with either of the titles that you mentioned. Great. I think it's very important work that you're doing, Nicholas, and I no, thank you for being on the show. Um, the last couple of questions are from my pop culture quiz, and those are more lighthearted things that, you know, our listeners might want to know but be might be too afraid to ask, so I'm going to do it for them. Um, okay, here we go. What is something few people know about you? Oh, boy. <laughs> Make it juicy. Something that few people know about me? Mm-hmm. Uh, um. All right, all right. I'll let you. Uh, yeah, I'm sorry. On the dead space, people will think that you got cut off again. Um, who is your hero? I, I I don't even know who my hero. I'm right now. I'm reading a book by George Orwell, homage to Catalonia. So I'm just mm. going to say that George Orwell is my hero. Okay. Because not only having written 1984 and Animal Farm in in the 1930s during the Spanish Civil War, he was a soldier and he actually did fight. And I think that he really did have this first-hand experience of, I don't know, fighting for freedom and fighting against fascism, but it's not... I mean, I feel as if... I feel slightly guilty because, I mean, there's so many liberals who actually haven't actually fought in any kind of real conflict and yet have always strident, strong opinions. And I feel like he's someone who's definitely... When he speaks and when he writes his books, they're coming from a clear historical place. Okay. Uh, Michael Moore, hero or blowhard? Oh, he's totally a hero. Okay. I I absolutely love that man. Okay. I'm really, it's it's really, I I guess anybody who's as outspoken as he is, and I guess it's a certain degree, a measure of his success that he's reaped so much criticism. And I'm sure, you know, some of it is, some of the criticism is fair too, but he is a hero. What quality do you admire most in your friends? Oh, boy. Um, <laughs> the ability to stay up late with me drinking and talking politics. What, do you, uh, what is your drink of choice? I think a good bottle of red wine goes a long way. Oh, okay. Uh, name another guilty pleasure. Oh, another guilty pleasure. Um, oh, it's, my guilty pleasures are no different than everybody else's. Guilty pleasures, um, culinary-wise. I just, I can't, I can't, you know, the usual cliches. I can't function without coffee and so on and so forth. Um, okay. Um, what is currently on your iPod playlist? That's a real pop culture quiz. <laughs> I was actually asked to ask you that, so you have to answer this one. <laughs> well, it's a brand new device, so there's, there ain't much on it, but there's a bit of, you know, some... Ella Fitzgerald and some Fleeter Kinney. Um, what else? Maximo Park. Wow, very eclectic, Nicholas. Yeah. Describe yourself in three words. Oh, God. Um, That's two. <laughs> thanks. Um, yeah, I don't know what the third one is. What is your last thought before bed? Uh, my last thought before bed, just trying to, 
I usually make a to-do list of what I have to do in the morning or the next day. And that helps me face the future. Wow. Thank you, Nicholas. And I, I look forward to facing the future knowing that you're there and able to express it and account for it somehow. And I'd like to thank you very much for being on the show. I'd like to thank the kind and patient people at Voice American Business, Denise Dion, Chris Hillier, Glory Call, Robert Arkin, my production manager, Ruben Cologne, and my executive producer, Brian Travis. I'd also like to thank my staff and my partners at the Sterling Group, my incredible producer, Lisa Grant, my chief researcher, Jen Simon. Please join me next week for Design Matters. My guest is the futurist, Andrew Zoli. Thank you for listening. And remember, we can talk about making a difference, or we can make a difference, or we can do both. I am Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking with you next week. Voice America Business would like to thank you for tuning in for Design Matters with Debbie Millman. Be sure to listen every Friday at 12 Pacific Standard Time for another exciting hour of Design Matters. Right here on the bottom line in business talk, Voice America Business.